how do we do this thing called life? I mean, really do it right. Treating ourselves with dignity and offering the same to others. It's like there's a similar presence weaving between those we admire, something that makes them different, separates them from the crowd, sets them apart from a world turned upside down. They found the narrow path and are slowly moving forward, while the rest of us take five lane highways and fill the air with strong words. But that doesn't have to be our story. We don't have to settle there. Jesus lived it out, laid it out for all to hear. Nine fruits that when turned into pursuits can change a life, transform a community, plant hope into a culture, wrap our city in love. So slap hands with a stranger, give your friends a hug. Because life isn't always easy, but when our character has deep roots, I promise, yeah I promise, we will bear fruit. That's his latest sermonic hit. I believe it actually landed him a new record deal at Death Row Records. And so if you see him this week, give him a slap or, or a hug or whatever that line was. What do you guys want to talk about tonight? Really bursting out of the gates here. Feeling like we're intimate and close and vibing. We're in a new series called Bear Fruit. And that is because we claim a story that says that we should. In fact, if you were to ask me the question of... Um, how, what is the central task that Easter people are supposed to take on in a post, or in a Good Friday world? Like, what are we supposed to be about? What is our job? Why are we here? Why do we do this on Sunday nights? Why, do we, why are we at church? The answer I would give to you is that we are called to bear fruit that looks and tastes and is edifying and as empowering as Jesus himself is. That's our central task. We are lovers because we first were loved. We are includers because we first were included. We practice advocacy because we have a personal advocate. And so we set out for the next, you know, X amount of years that we have on this earth together to learn how to collectively cultivate and bear fruit. And so for the next 10 weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at 10 specific, nine specific fruit. Debbie, is it 10 or 9? Do you read the, you read the Bible, don't you? Because you're a pastor. And so... Oh, this is concerning. You don't know the number. Don't mind me as I put my Blu-ray. Nine, excuse me. Nine fruits. We're going to talk about all that we're going to be aspiring to cultivate. But tonight we're going to look at the cultivator. We're going to be going to the text in John 15. Uh, context. John 15. This is Jesus' final dinner with his disciples. And Jesus knows that his time has come. He knows that he's running out of time left here on earth, and you didn't have to be the Christ to know it. Uh, it's actually interesting. If you study what scholars say about Jesus, when Jesus was out in the sticks up in the north uh, doing magic, walking on water, turning water into wine, when he was a rabbi out there, the Romans had no beef with him. He was a part of the Roman pacification program. The problem is when he came into Jerusalem and refused to participate in the status quo of exploitation and oppression and upside-down crookedness. He crossed the line when he went further into Jerusalem and went to the temple and turned over the table where people in power were making profits off of those who were poor. When he did that, uh, he couldn't go back. Profits are tolerated until you actually go for people's wallets and their bottom line. Think about King. There's one thing Martin Luther King was talking about civil rights, but the moment he starts talking about sanitation workers' rights, 
starts talking about the economy, he had to go. Jesus could sense that his hour was coming. Jesus could sense that his time was running out. And around a table, he says these words to his disciples. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. That's interesting, isn't it? Whether you are crooked or you are living a clean life, either way, you're going to get cut. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you, but remain in me as I also remain in you. In our upwardly mobile world that is always urging us to reach Jesus' final words to his friends are to remain. You know, I read a book a couple of years ago. I mean, I've read more since, but the, this book I'm going to tell you, is, it was called Stealing, Steal Like an Artist. And it's a short book, but it's packed full with all these different insights and practical advice for different creative folk. And one of the things they talked about in there was the importance of assembling your own family tree. That's not to cast shade on my family tree, because I love my family, so that's not what this is about. But if, if you were to, let's say, pull some inspiration from others out there, who would you put in that family tree? Whose life has filled your life, has shaped your life, has spoken into your life? Whose life has been formative in making you who you are today? And so I took up that task, and I threw a couple people on there. I threw up there uh, Gary Gaietti. I threw up there Dorothy Day, and I threw up there Dr. Martin Luther King. Those were three of the four names that I put up there. The first one that I put on there, though, the person who first came to mind for me. Wait, where is it? There he is. You guys know who that is? Brandon Manning, the Reagan muffin himself. Brandon Manning was the first writer uh, who was able to articulate theories, concepts of grace in a way that were liberated from like religious constraints. He, the way he spoke about grace was palpable and, and compelling. And I loved him and, and he brought so much life into my life. And so I put him on that tree and I had a chance to hear him speak once. Uh, Brennan Manning, when he stepped up onto the stage at Bethlehem University, um, the first thing he started speaking about was when he was a child. Ryan, thanks for coming. I appreciate you being here. <laughs> Brennan was talking about being a boy in Brooklyn. And he started talking about how he had a friend named Shell. And Shell was a Jewish friend of his that he would go to this park in Brooklyn with constantly. And they would talk about who they were going to be when they got big and what God was like and which girls they liked. And they were just close buds that would constantly hang out this, at this particular park. As they grew up though, as, as is often the case in life, they started to drift apart a little bit. And then the Vietnam War came and Brennan went into the Marines and Shell went into Army and they lost touch completely. They reconnected though after the war. And they actually decided that, hey, let's go back and meet at that park that we used to meet. When they did, to Brennan's surprise, he found out that Shell had become a Christian. Now, Brennan started asking questions like, so, so who is Jesus to you? Like, how do you understand Jesus? What is the role that Jesus plays in your life? Like, how do you paint me a picture of who Jesus is to you? And Shell kind of stumbled and mumbled and fumbled and he couldn't find the right words to say. And so he, it was kind of a weird moment, to be honest with you. They met up again a week later, Brennan says, 
and he's sitting on his bench waiting for Shell to arrive. And he sees Shell carrying this, um, this big sketchbook. And Shell comes and he sits down next to Brennan. He doesn't say much. But then he opens up his sketchbook and he taps on his friend's shoulder and he says, Hey, you asked me the other day who Jesus is to me. And I've been drawing some pictures in an effort to tell a story that I think can best answer that question. Do you want to hear the story that he told him? Simply yes would suffice. Thank you. Once there was a tree, and she loved a little boy. And every day the boy would come, and he would gather her leaves and make them into crowns and play king of the forest. He would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches and eat apples. And they would go and play, hide and go seek. And when he was tired, he would sleep in her shade. And the boy loved that tree very much. And the tree was happy. But time went by and the boy grew older. Then one day the boy came to the tree and the tree said, come boy, come and climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and eat apples and play in my shade and just be happy. I'm too big to climb and play, said the boy. I want to buy things and have fun. I want to live a little. I want some money. Can you give me some money? I'm sorry, said the tree. I don't have any money. I have only leaves and apples. Take my apples, boy, and sell them in the city. Then you will have money, and then you will be happy. And so the boy climbed up the tree and gathered her apples and carried them away, and the tree was happy. And the tree was often alone. But the boy stayed away for a long time, and the tree was sad. And then one day the boy came back, and the tree shook. shook. I think that's supposed to be shock. Shook, right? Thank you. The tree shook with joy and she said, come boy, climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and be happy. I'm too busy to climb trees, said the boy. I want a house to keep me warm. I want a wife. I want children. But I need a house. Can you get me a house? I have no house, said the tree. The forest is my house, but you may, if you'd like, cut off my branches and build a house, then you will be happy. And so the boy cut off her branches and carried them away to build his house. And the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time this time. And when he came back, the tree was so happy that she, could, she couldn't find the words to speak. And then she said, come, boy, come and play. I'm too old and too sad to place the boy. I want a boat that will take me far away from here. I need to go see some things. What do you think? You give me a boat? Cut down my trunk and make a boat, said the tree. And then you can sail away and be happy. And so the boy did that. He cut down her trunk and he made a boat and he sailed away. And the tree was happy, but not really. After a long time had passed, the boy came back again. I'm sorry, boy, said the tree, but I have nothing left to give you. My apples are gone. Mm, my teeth are too weak for apples, said the boy. 
Well, my branches are gone, said the tree. You can't swing on them anymore. I'm too old to swing on branches, said the boy. My trunk is gone, said the tree. There's nothing here for you to climb. I'm too tired to climb, said the boy. I'm sorry, sighed the tree. I wish I could give you something, but I have nothing left. I am just an old stump. I'm sorry. I don't need very much now, said the boy. Just a quiet place to sit and rest. I am so tired. Well, said the tree, straightening herself up as she could. An old stump is good for sitting and resting. Come, boy. Sit down. Sit down and rest. And the boy did, and the tree was happy. If you can get past the diagnosis of perhaps codependency that is present in that relationship and the environmental pillaging that happens between the two, if you can actually see past some of these things, you don't need a fully hundo percento accuracy of what Jesus is like. You can start to see why Shel Silverstein saw Jesus in that tree. It reminds me in many ways of what Paul said when he was asked what Jesus is like. Paul said Jesus was the one who had much but kept very little. He was the one who emptied himself of his essence for the edification and empowerment of everybody around him. Paul would later say that if Jesus is the human expression of what God is like, then God is the gift that is always giving. God is the eternal one who is being emptied again and again, for temporal figures like us. God is the gift that keeps on giving. God is like the giving tree. And I thought about that when I read that story. God is like the giving tree. But I also see how I am like that taker, like that, like that boy. I think there's a certain sorrow that's embedded in that story when you read it because you can't help but see how foolish that man is, but also how familiar he is. How often like, we, are just, we have our eyes set on something that will solve whatever that ache is inside of us, something that's out there on the other side of one more productive push. That's me. I can feel restless like that. I can lose sight of what's here because I'm so fixated on what's next, what's coming. As long as I can remember, I've always had that ache. That sense of there is something better out there. Something on the other side of that plan, something on the other side of that person, something on the other side of that position, something on the other side of that place. Whenever I can move from here to there, however I go about moving from here to there, on the other side of there, I'll finally move from famished to fulfilled. And the problem is, is that I've fallen for that lie so many times and I've wobbled back tired and sick and sore to the tree and I keep asking for the same thing again and again. I keep taking, hoping that what I take this time is going to take the pain, the ache, that sense of absence, that something is wrong away from us. And so I empathize with the man on the stump. I empathize with what took him over when he was a child. I empathize with him because I agonize over the same questions that seem to have caught himself up in. 
Those questions of uh, what am I going to do with my one precious life? How am I, what am I living for? What am I building for? What am I hoping for? What am I going for? Those questions in and of themselves aren't terrible unless they keep you from seeing what is actually here. Those incessant questions of what are we building for? What are we living for? Those are the questions that tormented that man. Those are the questions that have tormented me. And those are the questions that Jesus came to take away. Not by providing an answer to those questions, but by replacing that question with a better one. In John 15, if you read that text, my slides. Okay. If you read this text in John 15, you have the giving tree who sits at the table with takers all around him. And they're all carrying that same ache in them that you and I have in us. That same hope that somehow still this Jesus who we believe to be the Messiah, the one who's going to end all of our pain, bring to an end all the ambiguity, probably finally going to make it all better, fix the problems. The Romans are about to be evicted. Life is going to be fine. Fulfillment is finally ours. They're sitting around the table, around this giving tree, hoping that finally they're going to find that one thing that they've been missing. And I think just because of who Jesus is, the way that he's able to discern and perceive inside of our inner persons, that he can hear those questions bubbling up. And when he hears them, he takes them away. The giving tree sits at the table next to all of the takers. And he says to them, if you want to experience life to the full, if you want to taste some form of fruit that actually will last, if you want to move from famished to, to full, from starving to sufficient, the driving question of your life needs to shift away from what am I living for and towards where are you coming from? Away from who am I going to be and towards whose are you right now? Jesus shifts the paradigm. It's not about what you are going to produce. It's about the one who's already provided. It's not about all the different hero projects that we take in efforts to be impressive. It's about your foundation. That's what's important. Jesus says, if you actually want to be somebody that's going to be somebody, you need to be the branch connected to the vine. You need to remain, not reach. You need to stay close, not far. You need to know where you're coming from, not what you're living for. That's a paradigm shifter for me right there. To be rooted and established in a person who has actually defeated death and knows the keys to life, if he is saying that we can be a branch upon him, the vine, that there is an access point there and inside of that paradigm where we can call our home and see life through the lens of love that he provides, then I no longer have to go out there hoping that I can get you to like me, get them to work for me, find some way to take the ache away. Because it doesn't matter anymore. We've already been proven that we are are, are provided for, that we are loved, and inside of that love, should we actually dare to remain, we can have some life. That that sounds sounds good, right? Right? But it also is like when Jesus comes into Jerusalem 
And you start thinking about like the implications of what that looks like to actually stay with Jesus, and you're kind of like a little too close for comfort. I had this conversation with a friend once, mentor, who I was telling you, I was like, man, you know, it just feels to me, like call me crazy, or at least a heretic, it just feels like following Jesus is antithetical to living in a fulfilling way. It feels like a dumb idea when you actually break down the X's and O's. It just doesn't feel like a natural thing to do. To which my friend responded, yeah, that's, that's exactly the point. It's not natural to give money instead of take it. It's not natural to forgive those who hurt you. It's not natural to believe that you are loved as you are. It's not natural to receive Christ's love instead of spending your life trying to reach for it. That's not natural. To be a Christian, though, that's an unnatural way of living. And when you start to realize the, 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 the is it chasm, Maggie? Space between two points. Thank you. I was thinking schasm, but that would have sounded really strange. It's chasm. Schism, that's where I was going with that. Thank you. Where would I be without, without you guys? Where were we? Um, the chasm. Chasm. If you start thinking about the chasm between the call of Christ to be conformed to the patterns of his life as opposed to the natural routes that we would tend to take, you realize why it is that Jesus says that if you remain close to me, you will get cut up one way or another. You're going to get trimmed. You will be changed. And I understand why it is that we don't want to take that on. Because as a people who are born and raised as capitalists, we are driven by this desire for future accumulation. But as people who are born again as Christians, we are driven to abide in a present appreciation, to recognize the gift that is here, to recognize the goodness that's already been provided. To be a Christian is to understand that life begins at reception and not at that point where we reach for that one thing that we think we've been missing. Our joy isn't in our production, but in our participation in the joy that's already been provided. That's what being a Christian is all about. That's how you cultivate the bearing of fruits within you. But because of the chasm between those two things, I understand why we get cut. Why we can only be, uh, there's only going to be change that happens. But see, this is where I think phrases and verses like this in the scripture can be twisted and used in manipulative and dark ways. Because we take something like that and we say, see, God wants you to get sick so you can learn how to surrender. God gave you that tumor so you understand that it's always it's his life to take and take away. That's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying that not that God wants you to be in pain, but that God's not going to waste the pain that you're in. If you are coming from a place where you know where you're coming from as opposed to reaching for, all of life becomes your teacher. All of the pain that is present becomes an opportunity for you to expand and evolve and take on something new and evolve the fruits that God put in you in the first place. I taught my kids this this past week. You don't believe me? I'll tell you how. We had women at the table at our house, and so I was doing theological education in my, in my bedroom with my babies. We were watching Evan Almighty. Have you seen that movie? Lynn, have you seen that movie? It's so good. In the movie, it's a story of Noah kind of in... Um, God, who's Morgan Freeman, obviously, and he's being asked to, to build an ark. And at this point in the movie, Noah's wife is like, that's crazy. You're not actually going to build an ark. And Noah's like, yeah, I am. And they're starting to have this fallout. 
And the wife is starting to ask questions about, so how does, like, God work? And I want you to watch this scene, if I can get my slides to pull it up. Excuse me, can I get a refill, please? Coming right up. Excuse me, are you all right? Yeah. No, it's a long story. Well, I like stories. I'm considered a bit of a storyteller myself. My husband? Have you heard of New York's Noah? <laughs> the guy who's building the ark. That's him. I love that story. Noah in the ark? You know, a lot of people miss the point of that story. They think it's about God's wrath and anger. They love it when God gets angry. What is the story about then, the ark? Well, I think it's a love story about believing in each other. You know, the animals showed up in Paris. They stood by each other, side by side, just like Noah and his family. Everybody entered the ark side by side. But my husband says God told him to do it. What do you do with that? Sounds like an opportunity. Let me ask you something. If someone prays with patience, you think God gives them patience? Or does he give them the opportunity to be patient? If they prayed for courage, does God give them courage? Or does he give them opportunities to be courageous? If someone prayed for the family to be closer, do you think God zaps them with warm, fuzzy feelings? Or does he give them opportunities to love each other? Well, I gotta run. A lot of people to serve. Enjoy. Life becomes this incredible learning lab when we allow the fruits for the love of all that is holy. There he is. When we allow the fruits to come out of us in broken branches, be trimmed away. Uh, but the cut, the trimming of the branches, it's all secondary to Christ's invitation to be close. The reality is whether you're the old man who stumbles his way back towards the stump or you are the dedicated follower of Christ who desires only Jesus and nothing else, you're going to get cut up either way. But will you be close? That's not a given. It's interesting to me how in the Gospel of John, John bookends his story at the front and at the end with questions of what are you looking for? Who are you looking for? What do you want? And then the, his favorite word that he goes to again and again is abide, remain, be close. Or as Eugene Peterson says, make a home with me. How close are you to that? I want to close with a story from Brendan Manning, one more for the road. Because it's one that um, it's just been sitting in me all week. Brendan Manning was living at his home in New Orleans, and a woman came up to his door, and she was about 35 years old, and he opened the door, and she starts saying, like, I, um, are you Brennan Manning? And he says, I am. How can I help you? Uh, my, my dad is, is sick. He's, he's crying. He's, she starts falling apart, and Manning says, how, how can I help you? Is there anything I can do for you? The woman says, my dad is dying from cancer. And I've asked our pastor five times now to come over and pray with him. 
but he's been too busy with too many things in the church to actually get around to doing so. And I'm only here because I don't think my dad has much time left. Brandon says, I'll be over in 10 minutes. He comes over to the girl's house and he walks into the back bedroom and there is this old man lying in his bed and he's propped up on two pillows and there's an empty chair next to the bed. And Brennan says, you've been expecting me. The guy says, I don't know you. And he says, well, what about that empty chair? It looks like you're expecting some company. And the guy said, oh yeah, the chair. How about you just close the door behind you? And Brennan's going like, this is a different deal. Like, what is going on right now? And um, the guy starts to share. He goes, you know, I've never told anybody this in my entire life, but I'm gonna tell you it right now. I have no idea how to pray. I've never had any idea how to pray. I don't know where to start. I don't know where to stop. I don't know what to fill in between the start and the stop. I don't know how to pray. And I recently went to my pastor and I finally found the courage and I told him, I said, all of your sermons about prayer have not been helpful. I don't know how to do it. The pastor walked him into his back office and gave him a theology book and said, go home and read this and it'll show you the way to do it. In the first three pages, he had to look up 11 different words and he said, forget it. I don't want to do that. So years went by where he didn't even attempt to pray, didn't even see it as an option in his life when finally he had this best friend who said, you know, Joe, prayer really is nothing more than having a conversation with Jesus. It's a desire to be close. And so what you can do, Joe, is you can pull up an empty chair next to you and through faith believe that Jesus, who said he will always be with us and never forsake us, is actually sitting in that chair desiring to participate in the conversation with you. This guy is telling Brennan Manning all about this. He's saying, I have been doing this for two hours every day for the past four years, and it is the best part of my life. I'm a little bit cautious when I do it because I don't want my daughter to walk in and see me talking to an empty chair and send me away too soon, but it's the best part of my life. But you have a background in these things. Is that actually prayer? Can Jesus actually hear me when I do that? And Brennan looks at him and says, that is the most unsophisticated, honest, simple, and absolutely beautiful thing I've ever heard. And it delights the heart of the Father to hear it. The man starts weeping and he goes, that's what I was hoping you'd say. Brennan went back home and a few days passed when um, he gets another knock at his door. Same woman. And she comes to the door and she says that she wanted to come over. I want to make sure I tell what she said right. She comes to the door and she says to him that her dad has died and Brennan asked, did, she, did he die in peace? Like, what was the end like? Did he die in peace? Was he happy? Were you with him? Were you close? She said, yeah, he, he died in peace, I believe. But I left the house at 2 to go to the store, and he called me over to his bedside to tell me one of his corny jokes that he always used to tell me. Then he kissed me on the forehead. And when I got back just before 3, he was dead. He was gone. But it was strange, Brennan. It, it was beyond strange. It was weird, actually. At the moment that my daddy died, he leaned over and he put his head on the empty chair that was next to his bed. 
do you know that, Jesus? I know we know a lot about Jesus, but do you know that, Jesus? Can we know that, Jesus? I think one of the heartbreaking things about I recognize in my life and I recognize in a lot of our lives is that no matter who I'm meeting with, young or old, men or women, black or white, gay or straight, we know a lot of things about Jesus, but we don't spend a lot of time laying our heads in that empty chair. Pursuing that closeness that will cut you up but make you complete. The thing that's displayed in the life of Christ is that God is not to be known dogmatically, but known devotionally. Jesus is not the truth that we master, but the truth that we are mastered by. That's how we are formed into the image of the Son. That is how we start to bear fruits with our lives. Do we know that Jesus? Or do we just know about him? Will you pray with me? Jesus God, you are good, and we are grateful. God, you are faithful. We are takers, Lord. But Lord, you are the good giving tree, God, that is always happy to see us, always excited upon our return, and longing to reconnect and restore what has been lost. And so God, give us the courage to come back home, to trust in the mystery of all things, in the unknown, in the things we can't control, things that don't make sense. Give us the courage to go all in so that we can be people who are empowering and edifying to this city, to one another, so that we can experience the good fruit that you promise is ours to be had. In Christ's name, we all pray together. Amen. That's a good message, Matt. For some reason, that story always just makes me feel deeply sad. I'm going to think a little bit more about that, I think, tonight. But I think that ache, that restlessness, that sense of absentness that Matt was talking about, maybe it's uncertainty, fear. It's in those places in our lives, and I know we've all been in them. We've all had seasons and moments, and maybe you're right there right now. It's in those moments with the help of the Spirit in each other when we can stay rooted in Jesus, when we can remain in that love and that love remain in us, it's, it's then that we're changed. It's then when we slowly over a lifetime and we never arrive, we go from being the taker to the giver. And that's what our faith is about. And that's what we get to do together. And a practice that we engage in together every Sunday night is the practice of communion. And it's another way that we remember that we remain in God and God remains in us. And we do that when we take the bread and the cup together. As Jesus sat at a table with his friends, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, when you eat this bread, remember me, remain in me. And he took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you, the new covenant. And when you drink from this cup, remember me, remain in me. 
And so that's what we do. We take the bread and we dip it into the cup. And we remember God that loves us. And we remember that we love because he loved us first. That's the gift, friends. So as you come forward, whenever you feel moved to do so during the music, there'll be gluten-free elements right here in the middle and regular elements on the side. So please stand as together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil thine is the kingdom the power the glory forever <laughs>